Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Now, as you might know, I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Now, I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, stolen lands that were never ceded. Now, on this week's Final Draft, we featured a new anthology called After Australia, Taking us to Australia in 2050, the collection features an incredible selection of Indigenous writers and writers of colour telling stories that explore our society and where we're going. So this week, I'm going to be doing things a little bit differently because I've got a slew of great conversations for you to enjoy. Now, I'd like to share some of those conversations, starting with Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Muhammad is the author of The Tribe and the Lebs, which was shortlisted for the 2019 Miles Franklin Award. He's also the founding director of Sweatshop. It's a literacy movement based in Western Sydney, which is devoted to empowering culturally and linguistically diverse communities through reading, writing, and critical thinking. Muhammad edited the After Australia collection and has some fascinating insights into the role art and writing can play in addressing systemic inequality. Hello and salamu alaikum. My name is Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmed. I am the founding director of Sweatshop Literacy Movement and the author of The Lens. And I'm here today to talk about the new anthology that I have edited called After Australia. So if we were very practical about this conversation, what I would say is that the byline, the pull line for the, for the book that we created is after empire, after colony, after white supremacy, 12 diverse writers imagine an alternative Australia. And so um, 18 months ago, I was... Um, uh, contacted by Diversity Arts Australia to collaborate with them to develop an anthology which imagined the future of Australia by the year 2050. So it'd be an anthology of speculative fiction. And we created a partnership between a Diversity Arts Australia, Sweatshop, and a firm press to develop this book with me as the editor. And it was an opportunity for me to contact basically my favorite writers of color and indigenous writers throughout all of Australia uh, in a lot of the media for the book so far, we talk so much about the diversity of the book um, that there's 12 contributors and they're all Indigenous, all people of colour. But what a lot of people miss is that it also represents every single state in Australia, that we made sure there was a contributor from every state in the country. And so what we get is a very rich taste of the past, present and future uh, imagining from uh, writers of colour and Indigenous writers from every corner of this nation to give us what I would like to think is an incredibly important message for who we are, who we were, and who we might become. Now, the collection opens with a quote from Malcolm X, the future belongs to those who prepare for it today. Now, at the moment, Australia and the world are looking at a very uncertain future. It's It's also one that if we if we are truly honest, is it's systematically designed for and privileged towards white people. How do we flip that narrative and, and how does After Australia flip that narrative? Um, what a fantastic question. Thank you for asking. What I'll say first is I, I'm a kind of, I've become a bit of an expert in white fragility. So just to um, do a little bit of a disclaimer uh, before we have this conversation, I'll say that um, 
Whenever we're talking about whiteness, it's very important for the audience, for our listeners, who I presume would be significantly uh, members of the white community, um, uh, that we're not talking about uh, anything personal. What we're talking about are structural and systemic issues that privilege and prioritize people who would be identified as white with a capital W. And we use definitions, complex definitions, to talk about whiteness in our body, in our field of work. So one of the best definitions for anyone who's interested in talking about whiteness in Australia, I would recommend you read White Nation by Ghassan Haj. And in, in, in White Nation, Ghassan defines whiteness as the fantasy position of cultural dominance born out of the history of European expansion. And within that definition, I agree with your statement that we live in a country that generally prioritizes and privileges whiteness over other identities and communities. Now, with After Australia, what uh, we wanted to do was create an alternative vision for the future, which is determined and directed in both speculative fiction, but also fundamentally in, in, in a version of what we can consider to be reality. Um, that is that is dictated by Indigenous people and people of colour. I also want to make one more point, and that's from the quote you uh, referenced, which is the epigraph for the book. Malcolm X says, the future belongs to those who prepare for it today. So I chose that quote um, as the epigraph. I did not write an introduction for the book. I really wanted the writers to speak for themselves. And so, in a way, that quote is my introduction. If there's one thing I have to say for the book as a whole, it's that quote um, from from this very important Black civil rights leader, who, of course, we're talking about in the in the context right now of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so, what I uh, the reason I chose this quote is because what I realized when I was developing this book, I'd been hired to to publish a book about the future of Australia. But what I realized is that we really can't be talking about the future of Australia. We really can't be talking about where we're heading if we're not steeping it in where we are right now and where we started. And it does, it does seem like such a shame that so often when we, when we want to talk about whiteness, it feels like so many white people are triggered. So, um, I mean, look, I, I want to keep interrogating that because I think uh, I completely agree with what you're saying. We need to interrogate what is happening right now. Um, and look, I think a lot of people feel like maybe 2020 we're living in a, in a bad catastrophe film scenario. And I guess that might be true if all you've ever known in your life is, is the security that a level of privilege offers. And it's telling that several stories in After Australia imagine the sort of environmental, viral and, and ideological catastrophes that we're witnessing seemingly on a daily basis in 2020. So I wanted to ask, what role do the arts, and specifically here speculative fiction, have in, in processing that reality, and particularly the traumatic and unequal realities of a white-dominant society? There's so much in what you just said that I might need to – I, I want to speak to the beginning of what you said. Absolutely. And so I might need you to remind me of that, that last part of your question after I finish speaking about the first part of what you just said. No I, I would like to talk about – um, the idea that it's very hard to talk about whiteness. Uh, the author of uh, White Fragility, very, very famous white academic uh, uh, from the United States, um, Robin DiAngelo, uh, argues that when you're used to 100%, 98% feels like oppression. And what we mean is that if you're used to not being held accountable for your whiteness, if you're not used to being racialized, if you're not used to being told you are white, then when people of color say those things to you, 
you can feel like you are under attack. You can feel like you're experiencing racism. When in reality, people of color and indigenous people are regularly racialized and dehumanized for their race. Uh, the overrepresentation, of course, of indigenous people in prisons, for example. But even for me, specifically as an Arab Australian Muslim, I grew up in a country where um, for the, in the for all of my life, I it was not uncommon for me to be watching television, watching the news, and seeing Lebanese and Muslim being used interchangeably with with um, with discussions about crime, for example. So for people like me, I'm I'm used to being racialized 100% of the time, and so the idea and the experience of racism is very I'm very aware of it and when I when I experience it when I hear it when I'm when I'm when I am racialized I can generally respond with a lot of strength I, I you know it's not like I enjoy being racialized or being talked about as an Arab and a Muslim but if somebody says that's what you are I can generally cope with that because I'm used to that because I've been because I've grown up with that my entire life but I think when a white person gets told they're white for the first time after being normalized after having their race and their identity normalized for most of their life it can be very confronting and they can genuinely feel like they're under attack even though the reality is that it's very rare that whiteness is critiqued to the same extent that other minorities are critiqued uh, in australia and around the world um so that's the first point the second point is with regards to the a book like after australia i think that um uh, for the most part, most white people that I meet, and again, when I say white people, I'm, I'm referring to white people based on the, the definition that Gus and Hajj uses to define whiteness. But I think there's a genuine misunderstanding that when people of color and indigenous people talk about white people and whiteness, that it's coming from a place of hatred towards white people. But I think most indigenous people and most people of color will, will agree with me that we recognize that most white people, like most people, are good people who are sincere and who consider themselves to be anti-racist and who are doing their best to live in a free, just and equal society. We recognize collectively that most white people are just probably getting the wrong information, that they're listening too much to Scott Morrison and not enough Tony Morrison. And so um, when, I'm, when I meet good white people who are sincere about their desire to support people of color and indigenous people in the arts, which goes back to the beginning or to the last part of your question, um, when I meet sincere white people who say to me, I am sincere, I do want to address the race problem, I do want to support the struggle, how can I do it? What I usually argue is that, there are, that it's not a question of right or wrong or good or bad. It's just a question of what we as minorities feel is the best way that we can be offered support. And I always go back to a very uncontroversial statement. It's a, this is something that it's unanimously agreed upon between all people of color and all indigenous people in the art. If you want to empower us, if you want to support our struggle, if you want to support the movement for um, greater diversity in Australia and, and for greater representation across the art, there's a very simple way that you can do that, and it's to buy our books, to invest directly in the art that we create. 
I'm gonna. I'm just gonna second that because After Australia is an absolutely incredible book, and if it helps you discover twelve artists, there are probably going to be twelve more or more books to discover. But I want to keep interrogating the role After Australia has, I guess, in in what you were just talking about there, Muhammad. Um, so we're we're thinking about perhaps good white people living their lives perhaps unconsciously as a part of bad systems created to privilege mm. them. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of decolonization and what role it plays in imagining a future after Australia? Well, this really starts to get to the heart of the book. So, you know, you and I have just spent the last 15 or 20 minutes analysing whiteness as a, as a social structure which tends to govern so much of the way we, the ways in which we operate in Australia. Um, there's this other end to that spectrum, and there's another end to that stick, which is how people of colour and Indigenous people deal with the whiteness, how, how, we, how we push up against it. And I do think that even before the age of social media, but especially in the age of social media, so often the way minorities deal with their experiences and their encounters with racism and white supremacy is to scream at it, you know, to just kind of go on some tirade about how awful it is. Now, to, to be fair, there's a place for that. I actually think it's really important for minorities to be loudly articulating the pain that they're experiencing. But I don't think it stops there. I think the problem is that it's a fantasy. We, we, we as minorities tend to live in a fantasy to think that that is a constructive solution to a problem, to just kind of go on Twitter and abuse white people. When you look at cultural theorists like Bill Hook, who's a very important African-American feminist, social activist, and writer, what she argues is that real transformation means looking for alternatives, alternatives and fighting for those alternatives. And the reason why I think the genre of speculative fiction as a, as a, as a style of writing is so powerful and it's so it's been such a successful form for indigenous writers and writers of color is because it is the literal manifestation of bell hooks advice that when um that instead of us screaming at our problems what speculative fiction is about is is actually intellectuals prominent writers and critical thinkers trying to create an alternative vision for the future and then aspiring towards that vision. Now, in After Australia, uh, I think any even a casual reader will notice how eerily prescient so many of the stories are. And one feature of that is government creep, um, increased legal powers of detention, expanded security arrangements that permeate some of the stories. But seemingly often in the background... Should this be a call for political change? I, I would say several things. Firstly, yes, the book is very timely. So when After Australia was being developed 18 months ago, we never imagined that this is where we would be by the time this book came out. Just to contextualise it, yes, government, you know, the power of the government and the way these governments you know, control our lives, particularly under situations like this, are very concerning. And these are issues that are addressed in our book very effectively by writers like Claire G. Coleman and Michelle Law, for example. Mm. But there are also some other ones that are just as frightening and timely. So, of course, you would know Omar Seiko is an Arab-Australian Muslim poet 
from Western Sydney uh, wrote a short story for After Australia called White Flu, which imagines a world in which there is a, a global pandemic that is that has a racialized dimension to it. And it starts, you know, it talks about things like, you know, Mexico needing to finish the wall that Trump starts to keep white people from coming into Mexico, which, you know, things, things like this are starting to play themselves out in reality right now. And of course, when Omar started writing his white flu short story, nobody had even heard of COVID-19. Um, and then, of course, Black Lives Matter took place, the Black Lives Matter movement in, in, in the aftermath of the, of the murder of George Floyd. And... Um, you look at short stories in After Australia written by um, writers like Future D. Fidel. The uniqueness of his name in the particular context of talking about the future of Australia that is not going past me. But Future's story, because he's, he's originally from the Democratic uh, Republic of the Congo, and he's a very dark-skinned, very beautiful man. And he was, you know, working in... in uh, you know, selling solar panels on a street in in, uh, in somewhere in Brisbane, and some random some random concerned white citizen had called the police on him because there was a because there was and I say this in the inverted commas commas uh, there was a random black man just wandering their streets, and so this kind of stuff, these kinds of stories, very much mirror in a frightening way, the reality that we're living in right now. Um, and so when we, we began to produce After Australia, we had no idea that we would, we would have produced such a timely book um, at, uh, at, uh, that would come out at a particular moment when the world had gone into, like, into crisis mode. Uh, and that so many of the issues we were dis we were exploring that were meant to be for 2050 are happening right now. Now your question was, I think, about how should do we intervene? How do we intervene? Mm -hmm. And what does what does that look like? Uh, it's very hard for me as a writer to, to answer that outside of literature. What what I would say is that of course literature and writing isn't the the, the, the sole way that we find a solution. But if we look through history, literature and storytelling and writing and art has always played a very active role in social change and in creating critical consciousness that ultimately leads to resistance. I think it is incredibly important for people to be engaging in the things that are happening today and the ways that we as individuals respond and the ways our institutions respond. But so often it can seem difficult to conceptualise. And I mean, that's why I wanted to talk with you, Mohammed, about After Australia. That's why I wanted to feature After Australia for our listeners, because here we have 12 different responses that allow us to critically engage on so many different levels with things that perhaps, as you say, 18 months ago, we could not have conceived would be a part of our everyday reality. But really, I mean, history doesn't give us a choice with the, um, with the times that we get to engage with. I am speaking with Michael Muhammad Ahmed. He is the founding director of Sweatshop. He's the author of The Lebs uh, and The Tribe. And he is the editor of the anthology that we are discussing. It is called After Australia. It is an absolutely fantastic collection of 12 Indigenous writers and writers of colour. Muhammad, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I, lo I love when we get these opportunities. Thank you for coming on the show. 
It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you as well. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you so much to the listeners. Um, and I also would like to take this opportunity to thank Australia for the tremendous support, um, all Australians, for the tremendous support that we've been given as writers of colour and Indigenous writers throughout the country. Um, it's been wonderful. The main thing that I would say is that it's been absolutely wonderful to see such a um, such an interest in our work at this particular moment in time. That's it for this great conversation with Michael Muhammad Ahmed. The After Australia collection is out now through a firm press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. And we broadcast from 2SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Now, the final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. And I'd love it if you could help me help others discover new Australian books and their creators by giving us a rating and leaving a comment wherever you're listening to the podcast. Your ratings, your comments, your listens just help put Final Draft up in front of more eyes in the podcast world. And so more people can discover that we're out there. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Now, before I say happy reading, don't forget there's three more conversations in this selection featuring After Australia. And now, happy reading.